Today, uh, we are going to pick back up in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, uh, we had a special Thanksgiving message. Uh, we, uh, but the week before that, we had started Matthew chapter 26, going through the first 16 verses. And so today, we're going to cover verses 17 through 30 as well as uh, we're going to partake of communion today. Uh, And again, I know... I did this to you guys last month as well. Uh, I know that we normally do communion on the first Sunday of the month, but today's text, as you'll see, see it, it speaks directly about the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so it just made sense to do communion today uh, and not next week because it would be weird to talk about it today and then do it next week. So we're going to do communion today at the end of our service as well. So I'm looking forward to that time uh, with you and with the Lord. All right. Well, Matthew chapter 26. Will you please stand as we read this morning's text? Again, we're in uh, Matthew 26. We're going to be covering verses 17 through 30 in a, a message I've entitled, A New Covenant. Matthew 26, verses 17 through 30. Verse 17, it begins. Now on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to Him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And He said, Go into the city to a certain man, and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 20, When evening had come, He sat down with the twelve, Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. Verse 26, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this morning. Lord, we thank you for uh, the many blessings uh, that you have given to us. Uh, Lord, the blessings... uh, that we take for granted, just uh, clothing on our backs and, and a roof over our head, a, a place to meet and, and to worship you, Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would just take full advantage of the blessings and opportunities you've provided for us this morning, Lord, that we would find ourselves in your presence and hearing from you. Lord, we pray that you would lead us through your word, Lord, we pray that you would uh, uh, just prepare our hearts to receive what you would have for us. Lord, we look forward uh, with anticipation and expectation that you are going to speak to us and that you're going to show us something. Uh, Lord, maybe it's something to encourage us or maybe it's something to challenge us. Lord, whatever it may be, may we be yielded to it and may we just be uh, faithful to heed it. 
We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the meaning behind the Passover holiday and the dating of this last week prior to Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, Recall that uh, chapter 26 opened up in verse 2, speaking of how it was two more days until the Passover where the Son of Man would be delivered up to be crucified. And we turn, determined that it was Tuesday evening, what we would say our time, Tuesday evening our time, uh, when Jesus made that statement back in verse 2. And here we are in verse 17 of the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now, if you were to go back uh, through the Old Testament law, you would find that the Feast of the Unleavened Bread occurs the day after the Passover. So one may be led to believe that the events spoken of here are events that took place after the Passover, but that would be a mistake. If you recall, uh, we discovered a few weeks ago, the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, they were titles that were sometimes used interchangeably. Uh, Actually, Luke 22 informs us of this truth. In verse 1, it tells us that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was called the Passover. And so these titles were interchanged from time to time uh, because they really were... Connected, You know, one was one day, one's the very next day, and so they would sometimes just lump them all together. Uh, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, one is a one-day feast, the other is a seven-day feast, but sometimes they'd call the whole eight days Passover, or they'd call the whole eight days the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so... Uh, based simply upon uh, the text here, we know, because uh, of verse 17, we understand that the Passover has not yet happened and that they are, in fact, preparing for that Passover meal. Okay, And so as we studied about the Passover, uh, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, you will remember that we pointed out that the Passover was to be observed at sundown. Okay, uh, At the very beginning of their day. Remember that they count their days from sundown to sundown. And so for us, we... We go into the, the evening and we don't start our day till midnight, right? Well, they started right at sundown. And so right at the very beginning of their day, they would have this Passover meal, okay? All right, and so based upon these details, we, I think that we can safely conclude that the, the day is Thursday here and that the Passover is going to begin at sundown, which technically for them, that would be like the start of their Friday, okay? But we would still say it's just Thursday night, right? Following along? All right, great. The disciples, they came to Jesus wanting to know where they should prepare to eat the Passover meal. You know, I find Jesus' response to them a, a, a bit interesting. I find it funny, in fact. Uh, he tells them to go into the city that is swelling with people. Okay? People uh, from all over have traveled to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, and he says to find a certain man and tell him that the teacher's time is at hand and they were going to keep the Passover in his house. Uh, if you are reading from the other gospel accounts, it does give us a little bit more information. I think that would be really a really difficult task, huh? Just go find a certain man, and 
he'll lead you right to the house. Or, you know, that's like this place is packed, right? Reading from the other Gospels, it does inform us that this certain man would be a man that would be carrying a pitcher of water and that this man would actually meet them as they entered into the city, uh, that they were to follow him. And so uh, Mark actually tells us that those details. And so they were going to enter the city and they were going to, this guy with a water pitcher was going to meet them and, and they were to follow him. Who this man is, we do not know. Uh, this man with the uh, pitcher of water, the scriptures do not tell us uh, anything uh, about this man other than that he met the disciples, that he led them to a house that had a large upper room, and uh, it was a furnished up, upper room that was prepared for them to partake of the Passover meal. You know, the situation, it actually reminds me of when Jesus, just a few days earlier, uh, if we think of our timeline here, just a few days earlier, He sent His disciples to get a donkey for Him to ride upon into the city of Jerusalem for His triumphal entry. If you remember the account when we went over that, uh, Jesus told them they would find a donkey with her colt tied up and that they were to loose it and bring it to Him. And if anyone said anything, just to tell them the, the Lord has need of it. You know, and then that owner would then immediately send them on the way. Uh, Jesus had worked out all the behind-the-scenes details then, and it appears to me that He has done the same in this situation. You know, I believe that, that Jesus still operates behind the scenes even today. He's in control of, of life's situations. He's at work behind the scenes. You know, unbeknownst to us, uh, He's orchestrating events in our life that He's going to use for, for our growth and for our maturity. You know, that we might grow closer to Him. That we might even be used by Him for the furtherance of His kingdom and for His glory. Sometimes, uh, we are like the disciples here who were the recipients of some of this behind-the-scenes planning that was going on. Uh, they didn't know it, but Jesus had already made uh, the, the plans, and there was a guy that was going to meet him and take him to a room, and it was all going to work out. Sometimes, uh, other times, we are more like this unnamed man carrying a, a pitcher of water. We're the agents that he uses to work behind the scenes, to be a, a blessing for others. You know, and... and Oftentimes, you know, uh, we need to be both. You know, it's good to be both. We, we don't want to be too heavy on one side or, or absent on the other side. Uh, and absent on the other side, I think, you know, church ministry, a lot of things happen behind the scenes in church ministry. A lot of things uh, that you guys maybe not see that come here on a, on a Sunday morning. But, you know, there's... Uh, decorations that are out and, and lights are on and the you know AC or the heaters turned on most of the time. Uh, we try and keep it somewhat comfortable in here and there's stock in the bathroom, which I'm sure you appreciate, but you probably don't think about. But there's people that come in and, and do those things, you know, do those behind the scenes things. Uh, you know, I think that happens in a lot of different areas of life uh, where God just uses people behind the scenes. And I believe there's a number of people like that man who was uh, carrying a water pitcher who we don't know that God would use in, in great ways uh, to do great things. And, and when we get to heaven, I think we're going to be surprised, you know, of the people that we thought, God used these people so much. Uh, and then there's going to be a bunch of people we've never seen before that uh, the Lord is honoring. And so 
I think it's just a, a good thing, a good uh, uh, reminder for us to, to look for opportunities to work behind the scenes and to realize uh, that God is working uh, in our lives as well when we might find things happening uh, that we might say, oh, that's a coincidence that this happened. And it's like, no, God is orchestrating these events in our life. You know, and whether you are the recipient or the agent, I hope that we can take comfort in knowing that God is still in control, that He still is working behind the scenes in our life. You know, I believe that the Lord gives to us a a peace that comes when we have the confidence that God is at work and that He is in control. When life seems uh, to not make sense, we can still have peace knowing and understanding that God is in control and that He is at work. Well, verse 19 tells us that the disciples went and they did as they were directed and they prepared the Passover. Now, the preparation for the Passover would entail a a little bit of work for them. The Passover was a meal that had a very specific menu. It wasn't a church potluck. The Passover uh, wasn't just bring your favorite sides and that as long as it goes with lamb, we'll be okay. That's not how it worked. It was a very uh, specific menu. Uh, It included, uh, obviously, the Passover lamb uh, was a part of the meal. But there would be unleavened bread. And there would be uh, bitter herbs. Uh, according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 8, it tells us that those would be part of the menu. Uh, tradition tells us that they would eat what is called, and I'm going to butcher it, caraset. Caraset. Caraset, maybe? Uh, it was a, a sweet, dark colored paste made of uh, fruit, mashed up fruits and nuts. And. Uh, uh, the menu items would be used, uh, every menu item within the Passover was used as an object lesson within the Passover meal. Okay. Uh, it was used to retell the account of God's freeing the Israelites from slavery under the Egyptians in accordance to Exodus chapter 12 verses 26 and 27 it tells that you need to tell your children all about how uh, the Passover happened and how God delivered you and so they instituted this Passover as a means to retell the story and to retell the account of the Exodus the Passover lamb reminded them of the night when God passed over the house of the children, uh, children of Israel in Egypt and when He struck the firstborn of all the Egyptians. The bitter herbs, they were used to remind them of the bitterness of slavery that they went through for hundreds of years while in Egypt. The kerosene, uh, with its dark color and, and texture, they were meant to recall uh, mortar or, or mud that was used to make bricks during their time of slavery. The unleavened bread, it was a, a reminder of how they had to quickly flee from Egypt. And, and they didn't have time to wait for their bread to, to rise. And so they didn't put yeast in the bread. They just you know, made it up real fast and took off because uh, they uh, were fleeing quickly. And so every piece of the menu meant something, and it was used to retell the story. Uh, And this has been going on for hundreds of years now. Uh, uh, For Jesus and his disciples, they've been partaking of this meal. It's a very detailed meal. Uh, Today, uh, we refer to it as the Passover cedar. Okay? 
Seder, Cedar, uh, however you want to say it. But uh, the Cedar, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to uh, uh, partake of a Passover Cedar before, but it's very interesting, uh, all the symbolism in each of the uh, meals, uh, pieces within the meal. Each one is very interesting how it all lays out. Uh, I've had opportunity to partake of a couple of them. Uh, I was thinking about maybe we should be able to try and do one maybe this year during uh, Easter uh, week. Uh, we might be able to do something like that if we can get some of the supplies. Some of them are a little weird, uh, or you have to be creative. With <laughs> but uh, uh, if you know about it, or if you've been uh, seen it before, this cedar, uh, it actually has a script that you're f- to follow uh, in partaking of the meal and retelling the account of the exodus uh, from Egypt. This script uh, is known as the Haggadah. Uh, was, it actually was not yet compiled during Jesus' day, so we can't say for certain that they ate in the exact same manner as uh, they do today. The rabbis uh, bound and put together the Haggadah uh, after Jesus' time. They Some say uh, maybe as early as 170 uh, CE or uh, after Jesus, you know, common era, however they say it nowadays. It used to be BC and, and AC, or, or BC and AD, but they don't use AD anymore for some reason. Okay, anyway, so uh, this script is the Haggadah. Uh, we don't know for sure if. Um, if it was exactly done the same way, but we do see elements uh, of the Haggadah being used in Jesus' observance of the Passover meal. Some of the things that he did are things that are mentioned in the Haggadah that aren't mentioned uh, within the Old Testament. Uh, For instance, the use of wine isn't mentioned in the Old Testament, but they used it here in the observance of the Passover meal, and that is part of the Haggadah. And so uh, many people believe that that tradition, even though that book wasn't put together until after Jesus' time, the tradition had been going on for many years, and it was part of Jesus' custom in uh, observing the Passover. Whatever the disciples needed to do, though, in in order to prepare for the Passover, we see that they did it, and and we pick up our account in verse 20. It's in the evening, and they're eating the meal. It says, When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Jesus, to the the shock and dismay uh, of his disciples, he announces that one of the disciples is going to betray him. You know, I think it's interesting that the disciples, they all seemed uh, unsure of who it would be that would betray him. I I think oftentimes, or at least I think, uh, that we picture Judas uh, as some dirty, rotten scoundrel, you know, that was kind of like always in black and, and just, you know, had his hair greased back or something. Just this evil kind of guy. But, but we don't see any indication that they suspected anything of Judas. Okay? Uh, we think of him as a, as a mean, evil person for good reason, uh, because we know what, what he did. Uh, but to the rest of the disciples, he didn't stand out as an obvious suspect of this betrayal. The disciples didn't say, Lord... Is it, is it Judas? It's Judas, right? We all know it's Judas, right? Because look at the guy, you know. They, they didn't say that, okay? And so there was no suspecting of Judas. Um, and, and Judas was, was seen 
he wasn't seen in any sort of negative light. In fact, if you were just a, a, an observer of looking at how things were broken down and responsibilities were delegated within the disciples, if anything, he was seen as one that was responsible and, and trustworthy. He was the one that was placed in charge of holding the money box. And so with that came a responsibility and probably a little clout as uh, one that would be uh, honored and respected. Each of them, they began to ask, Lord, is it I? Scholars suggest that the construction of the question actually indicates that they expected no as the answer. So it was more like, it is not I, is it? Like, it was, it's not me, right? You know, uh, that kind of a thing, how we would say it. I actually like how the NIV translates the statement. It says, surely not I, Lord. Um, and, and so it seems to just be an accurate portrayal of that mindset. Like, they, they, they couldn't... Uh, None of them could assume it would be them. None of them would presume to be themselves. None of them thought they were capable of doing such a thing. Uh, the thought of betraying their Lord, their Master, was something that was unthinkable. Uh, even later on, as we get continue into Matthew, we're going to see Peter. He'll, he'll start saying, no way, it's never going to happen. And you guys know what happens with him, right? Uh, so none of these guys thought they would, were capable of doing such a thing. And they asked, Lord, is it I? Jesus, he gave more information regarding uh, the identity of this individual in verse 23 and, and 24, 25 we'll read. He says, He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man of by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. Jesus said that his betrayer was someone that had dipped his hand with him in the dish. Okay? Part of the Passover meal included dipping your unleavened bread into the bitter herbs and eating it. Okay? And it's not like today where you're kind of like everyone has their own little dish because you don't want to do like a double dipping, you know, and that's not allowed. It was, that was fair game. You know, you can dip and re-dip and you're sharing with other people and it's just everybody's getting in on it and having a good time. So you'd be sharing. Uh, and so some of you are kind of grossed out by that probably. But uh, that was just part of the, the tradition and the custom, okay? Oftentimes they're, uh, at a large table setting, there would be uh, perhaps small dipping uh, dishes, uh, but that they would be shared amongst the people that you're sitting next to. And so... Uh, uh, the man who was going to betray him was someone that was sitting close to him. Someone that had dipped in the same bowl that he had dipped in. And so uh, some have tried to speculate and some have tried to say that Judas was sitting to the immediate left of Jesus. Uh, and that actually that seat to the immediate left of Jesus as the host of the Passover would be a seat of honor. Uh, but we don't read of anything like that in the scriptures. That's more of a tradition. And so I tried looking for something to support it, but I couldn't find anything. So uh, that's out there. Perhaps he was. Uh, I think it would be uh, interesting just to consider being placed in a seat of honor, knowing the Lord, knowing that he would uh, betray him, that he would put him in such a place. Um, we assume that Judas needed to be close to him since they shared a dipping bowl together, but we can't be for certain where he sat. 
Okay, so you have different pictures, and even Da Vinci's has got him a couple to the right uh, of him. You know, we don't know where he sat, but they dipped in the same bowl is all we do know. After this, Jesus, he went on to explain that, that all of this was happening according to the scriptures. Okay, but that... Interestingly, that there was still a sense of responsibility on the behalf of his betrayer. Verse 24 uh, presents really two different points of view as you look at verse 24. Uh, it says, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe, uh, that's a pronouncement of judgment, uh, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. The divine point of view uh, depicts this event as all part of God's plan from the beginning. It's happening just as it was prophesied, just as it was written. It is a fulfillment of God's plan. Okay? It's happening just the way God uh, purposed it to happen regarding the Messiah and His ministry and how He would be betrayed by a close friend, uh, fulfilling prophecies from Psalm uh, 49. The human point of view, though, and we look at it from a different point of view, the human point of view, we still see that Judas is held responsible for his actions. Now, some might say, well, that's not fair. You know, he was fulfilling God's plan, you know, and, and that's not his fault. But no, he's held responsible. Whoa, that's a, a pronouncement of judgment upon Judas, uh, upon the betrayer. Even though it was written this way, even though this was part of God's plan, Judas would still have to answer for his betrayal of Jesus Christ. He doesn't get a free pass simply because, well, it was part of God's plan anyways. You know, I think sometimes uh, if you get lean too much on that idea of, of God's plan and, and His sovereignty that we can just assume no responsibility at all in our lives. And that's definitely not what we see within the Bible as we read it. People are held responsible. People are held accountable. You and I will be held accountable for what we did with Jesus Christ. And you can't say, well, it just wasn't part of God's plan. It doesn't work that way. We will be held accountable. I find it interesting how Judas asked. He asked if he was the guilty party. I find it interesting for a couple different reasons. First, we know that Judas has already agreed to betray him. We already know that the, the deal's already been done. He's already made an agreement with the uh, chief priest that uh, they're going to exchange. There was an exchange of 30 uh, pieces of silver to betray him. And so uh, it's interesting that Judas would say, Is it me? But he knows it was him. Uh, to ask the question, was, it was, we see uh, it was just an outward act uh, of show to, to go along with the others who were asking similarly. It would have looked odd or weird for him not to. Everyone else is saying, Lord, is it I? And he, he doesn't say anything. Maybe people would be like, maybe it's Judas. <laughs> maybe it is Judas. Uh, and, and so he asks. Uh, he knew that he was going to betray him, but he didn't want others to sus suspect him. So he played the part everyone expected him to play. Uh, and I think sometimes that's something that we have to look out for. You know, sometimes we can just play the part. And we can kind of go through the motions, but our heart is not connected. And we need to be careful that we're not like Judas in that manner. Second, uh, I, I, I think it's interesting the wording that's used. Uh, if you look at it here, 
I think it's significant. The other disciples said, Lord, is it I? But Judas says, Rabbi, is it I? You know, the difference between these two words is significant. The word Lord means master. It is the Greek equivalent to the Old Testament title Jehovah. Okay? It is associated with a title for God. Lord, they called him. The word rabbi, it can also mean master. Okay? But it implies more the idea of a, of a teacher or an instructor, someone who's a, a master in a certain field. Okay? Not to do with deity or not having anything to do with anything in that room regard. He's a teacher. And so looking at this, uh, to me it just points out to, that Judas, to Judas, Jesus was not God. He was not Lord. Okay? He was merely a, a teacher, an instructor. He was, he was rabbi, but he wasn't Lord. Unfortunately, Jesus did not follow the teachings of his rabbi. Eh? Jesus declared to Judas, You have said it. Eh? The idea is, yes, just as you said, it is so. And I wonder, uh, in that moment, how Judas uh, must have felt. It's interesting because if you read John's Gospel account, uh, although he said uh, he, he identified Judas the tells us in John's Gospel that the other disciples, they didn't understand it. And actually when he was sent off, they thought, oh, he must be going to get supplies for the feast uh, that was coming up, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that was going to be happening for the next seven days. And he's the money guy. And so uh, Jesus just sent him on his way to go get some supplies. They didn't understand what was happening and what was taking place. But I wonder in that moment how Judas must have felt. I, I, I do not believe that Jesus said this to condemn Judas. I believe he said it to call him to repentance, to acknowledge and say, I know what you're doing. Not, not with a, a, a voice of condemnation or hatred or anger, like, I, I know it's you, you, you no good you know, betrayer. You know, it wasn't that. He says, you have said it. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, it's you. And I think it was with that type of sincere heart. A heart uh, that longed for Judas to repent. A heart that longed for Judas to, to turn from his ways. I picture Jesus' attitude as more of one of remorse and sadness at what Judas uh, is about to do. Not, uh, not anger and condemnation. We know that because if we look at the other gospel accounts of this day and what he's doing, he, he went and he washed Judas' feet and served him. Perhaps he did put him in a place of honor, trying to acknowledge him, trying to reach out to him, doing what he could uh, to show his love and his care, his concern for Judas. But it didn't, Judas was numb to it. Okay? Verse 26 through 30, let will read here, it says, And as they were eating, uh, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. 
But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus here, uh, he institutes what is known as the Lord's Supper. Okay? Uh, or what we commonly refer to as communion uh, or maybe uh, Eucharist. Okay? Uh, there's lots of different names for it. Uh, it is a very uh, significant thing that Jesus institutes this sacrament during the Passover meal. Okay? Uh, this isn't the, the, uh, the Lord's Supper was not just something where he just took some bread and passed it out. Okay? This, this was a very important part of a meal. Remember that the Passover meal was meant to remind them of their deliverance from slavery and the freedom that they received by the hand of the Lord. That's what Passover was for. And, and so it's, it, it's significant that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper here because like the, the Passover, the Lord's Supper is meant to remind us of our own deliverance from slavery and the freedom that we've received by the hand of the Lord. The scripture, Scriptures teach us that we were slaves to sin, but that we were set free from sin through the work of Jesus Christ. Remember that everything in the Passover meal had a symbolic meaning to it. Okay? To remind the people of how God delivered them. And as Jesus took the elements of the meal, He didn't give the normal explanation of the meaning of each of the foods. He, he reinterpreted them. He gave them a new meaning. Okay? And He told them, um, He uh, tied them to Himself. This new work that He was going to do. Thus the focus was no longer, uh, Passover was no longer a, a remembrance uh, of the suffering of Israel in Egypt and God's deliverance, but it became uh, focused upon the suffering that Jesus would endure as His body would be broken for us and His blood would be poured out for us and that He would deliver us from our sins. And so it's a, a change of focus. The focus off of Israel and their suffering in Egypt and uh, the, the focus realigned upon Jesus and His suffering that would uh, free us from our bondage. Here Jesus, He speaks of a new covenant. Okay? A new system for approaching God. The old covenant okay, was established through Moses. The old covenant was based upon a system where men could relate to God and come to God through a priest who offered a sacrifice for that man and for his sin. In the, in the book of Hebrews, uh, the author spends a great amount of time in comparing the difference between the Old Covenant with its limitations and the New Covenant. And I wanted to just read the entire like four or five chapters for you, but I tried to pick out just some verses that will go uh, well. And so what I want to ask you to do is, is to turn to the book of Hebrews with me. Okay? Make your way to the book of Hebrews. I will have them up here, but they're big chunks so you're going to have to, it would be difficult to read from there. But if you turn to the book of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus, uh, or uh, excuse me, the author of Hebrews, uh, he speaks about 
the need for a, a new priesthood. He speaks about a lot of the shortcomings of the old covenant and the system that was in place. In Hebrews chapter 7, the author speaks of a need for a new priesthood. If you look in verse, starting around verse 11, it starts to, to, to speak about that need for a new priesthood, describes how the old worked. And the author pointed out how the old priesthood through the Levitical line was weak, how it was unprofitable. How it was unable to perfect anyone. Verses 18 and 19 tell us that. He showed how Jesus came as a high priest, not through the Levitical line. Jesus was from the the tribe of Judah. Uh, So he he didn't come from the tribe of Levi, where the priest came from. But he came from a different line of priest. He came through what Hebrews 7 tells us, the order of Melchizedek. Okay? You may have to be a pretty good Bible student to know the name Melchizedek okay? and where it's connected. But Melchizedek was actually uh, the high priest, uh, not through the Levitical line, but through uh, 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 an everlasting priesthood. He, Melchizedek, was the priest that came to Abraham all the way back in Genesis as Abraham came back from war and the spoils of of the victory. He encountered uh, Melchizedek. He was the priest of the Lord Most High. And Abraham gave him a tithe of all that he had. And he didn't have any type of lineage. It's totally a picture of Jesus Christ. And here we see Hebrews tells us that that Melchizedek, Jesus is from that line, from that order. Since he came from the order of Melchizedek, his priesthood would last forever. Okay. Uh, Hebrews 7 speaks of Jesus' unchangeable priesthood how, and how much better it was than the old priesthood. Okay, if you look at verses 24 through 28, it, it, it summarizes that. It says, verse 24 of Hebrews 7 says, But He, speaking of Jesus, because He continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. And so he's comparing the old priesthood and how the, 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 the old priest, it was, there was a weakness within them. Okay? They were, uh, the old priest, the, the old way of coming to the Lord, they, they were sinners. And they needed to, to daily offer up sacrifices for their sins and the people's sins. They were men with weaknesses, but Jesus was perfect. Okay? Hebrews 8 
If you continue to look through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 8 details how God found fault with the first covenant and saw a new, uh, a need for the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. Just next chapter, okay? Uh, verse 7, it says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. The idea, well, if, if everything was good in the beginning, we don't need a second one. But he says that's not the case. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Okay? He says, that old covenant that was established when I, they exited Egypt, okay, that's a reference to the Passover and all that kind of stuff that was happening there when they exited Egypt. He says, there was fault with it because when I brought them into the land, they didn't follow the covenant. They didn't follow through. And so it didn't, it didn't work. Hebrews 9, uh, uh, the author speaks of the limitations of the earthly service within the sanctuary. Uh, Verses 6 and 7 speak of how the priests were limited to serving uh, daily in the first part of the temple. Uh, the temple or the sanctuary where the, the table of showbread were at and, and uh, the, uh, 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 the altar and, and those types of things, but to go into the holy of holies. Okay? They were not permitted to enter into the most holy, but for only one time a year were they only able to access that uh, uh, intimacy, that relationship with the Lord. What does it say in verse 11 through 14 if you look at Hebrews 9? It, it contrasts that idea of here you have the old covenant. You've got guys, they can work in the front part, of, but they can't go into the back of the house but one time a year. And so he contrasts that with Jesus. And what Jesus did, he says, verse 11 through 14, it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 15 says, And for this reason He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant uh, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Okay, here, the old covenant, it was based upon the sacrifice of bulls and goats and, and other sacrificial animals, but the new covenant is based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay? Hebrews 10, like I said, you just continue reading through. Hebrews 10 speaks of why the animal sacrifices were insufficient. They were no good. Okay? If you look at it, at verse 4, it says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. You see, the animal sacrifices, they merely attempted to cover up your sins. They never had the ability to remove your sins. That is why people had to come back year after year after year 
and offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because there was no way to remove the sin. You just had to get a fresh new coat every year to try and cover up your sin. Verses 11 and 14 um, of, verse, of, of chapter 10 says, uh, and, every, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus Christ, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstep, footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Okay. Hopefully you're still following along with me here. Okay. Through the new covenant, sins can actually be removed forever. Not simply just covered up year after year. This new covenant, because Jesus Christ and His once and for all sacrifice has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's you and me. Those who are being sanctified. We don't have to go and offer up sacrifices every year. Year after year after year. A once and for all sacrifice, this new covenant, okay, Turn back to me with, to, to, to the book of Matthew. Okay? As you, I was reading through Hebrews this week and just reading the whole thing. I thought, I'm just going to maybe just read 7 through 10, the whole entire thing. But I tried to pick out some verses. You get the idea here. Okay? The, the book of Hebrews, the author there, makes a very large uh, point to say that the old covenant was flawed. It was weak. Okay? The people who ran it were weak. They were sinners. Okay? Not in a, you know, in a terrible way, but it was just incomplete. It was insufficient. The animal sacrifices were insufficient sufficient. They couldn't take away sin. All they could do was try and cover it up. And so here Jesus is instituting a new covenant. The old covenant was weak. Okay? <laughs> it was time for Christ to establish a new covenant. A covenant based upon His body that would be broken for us and His blood that would be poured out for us. A covenant that was based upon one man's perfect offering once and for all, and it had the power to remove sins. Today we are going to partake of communion. Okay? And as we do so, we're going to take uh, a little bit extra time to explain, because there's a great connection between the elements and how they were done within the Passover meal and how they portrayed to this new supper, this Lord's Supper that was being uh, instituted at this time. And so uh, I do want to ask Nick uh, and the team, if you'd like uh, to come up and and, uh, lead us in in worship. And the ushers, if the ushers can get ready, uh, the elements, uh, I'd like to ask the ushers just to uh, go ahead and and pass out all the elements, pass out the the bread and the cup. And I want to encourage you guys to hold on because we're going to look at what this bread and what this cup represent. We we kind of know we've been we've taken communion, but how did it connect to the Passover? He instituted this during the Passover meal, and so uh, we're going to look at the connection there. And so uh, Nick's going and, and the worship team's going to lead us in song, and then uh, once we get the elements, I'll come back up and uh, lead us in a time. All right?
verse 26, Jesus, He took the bread, He blessed it, and He broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and He said, Take, eat, this is My body. You know, Jesus, when He, when he took the bread, He would have been taking uh, unleavened bread. Okay? Uh, this was the uh, traditionally part of the Passover meal. It would be unleavened bread. And the symbolism of the bread is significant because leaven in the Bible is, is synonymous with sin. Okay, if you ever read anything leaven or, or yeast, it's always a picture of sin and corruption and, and decay. And, and so he, he holds up this bread and, and he breaks it and he says, this is my body. And it's a picture of, of something that's without sin. And so it's, a, it's an accurate description uh, uh, or portrayal of his body. How it was sinless. When Jesus uh, did took that bread and, and uh, pulled it out and, and highlighted it. In fact, uh, not only was it a picture of his sinlessness, but there's actually other things if you consider uh, more symbolism. If you've ever partaken of a cedar dinner, uh, you know that the unleavened bread uh, used, it's called matzah. And matzah bread uh, is, is striped. Okay? And it's actually pierced as well. Uh, and they say... You know, the Jewish people say, though they do that because it bakes faster. And so uh, it just kind of, that's why it's done that way. But as Jesus would hold up that piece of matzah bread, you know, this unleavened bread that's pierced and it's got stripes, and he'd say, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and, and eat this. Uh, the symbolism would be beautiful. Because just as the bread was striped, so would Jesus' body be. He was whipped and striped by scourging. And that's going to happen, actually, within our text, that very next day, that next morning. Isaiah 53 says, But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. And so when they'd hold up this matzah bread, and it's got stripes on it, and He'd say, This is my body. It was a beautiful picture. But, but not only did it have stripes, it was also pierced. They, if you ever have matzah bread, you can see right through it because it's got holes all throughout it. And, and likewise, just as the bread was pierced, so too would Jesus' body be. He would be nailed to a cross, pierced through His hands and feet, and even pierced through His side as He hung upon the cross. The matzah bread was a, a great picture of Jesus' body. And it's amazing. I've talked to, to so I have some Jewish friends and I've said, that's amazing, your masa bread. Like, do you see the symbolism? And it's like, it doesn't mean that. It's like, oh man. When he held that up and he said, this is my body, it wasn't just any piece of bread. It was, it was unleavened bread. It pictured his sinlessness. It was a bread that was pierced, picturing what was going to happen just a few hours from now. The, it was striped, picturing the, the beating that he was going to take for our sins. So a beautiful picture. And so as we take part of the bread, we remember that and we, 
We use a cracker, it's a saltine. I know it totally loses its symbolism. But we can have a little bit of imagination. Imagine this is the masa bread, okay? It, it, uh, unleavened and striped and pierced. And what a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ and, and what he would do for us. And so let's partake of the bread at this time. verses 27 and 28 uh, Jesus then took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to the disciples telling them to drink from it for it was his blood of the new covenant which was shed for many for the remissions of remission of sins you know there were actually traditionally within the Passover meal there were four cups that would be drunk drunk yes drunk that would be drunk uh, at the Passover feast. Each cup was actually relating to one of the four promises in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Okay? These four promises uh, were given in response to Moses wondering why God had even sent him to speak to Pharaoh in the first place. Nothing but trouble had come up up until that point. Moses had gone and spoke to Pharaoh and said, Hey, you know, let us go away. My paraphrase. Let us go away for a few days and worship the Lord. And he says, you got too much time on your hands. You think you can go do that? I'm going to double your work. Oh, you're going to make the same amount of bricks, but I'm not going to give you the straw. And it was just a, a burden. And the people came to Moses and said, why did you even come? You're going to kill us out here. And, and Moses is complaining, not complaining, but coming to the Lord saying, Lord, why did you send me? And the Lord spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. He says, This is what I want you to tell the children of Israel. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The Jews, they, they broke down these verses into four promises. And they would remember those four promises during the Passover. That first promise, I will bring you out. The second, I will rescue you. The third, I will redeem you. And that fourth one, I will take you. And there was a cup that was associated with each of those promises that they would partake of. The first cup was called the cup of sanctification. The second cup was the cup of plagues, as they would remember the ten plagues that God used to rescue them. The third cup was the cup of redemption. It corresponded with that third promise that I will redeem you. And the fourth cup was the cup of completion talking about just the completed work of God's salvation, God's redemption, God's plan for them. You know, scholars suggest that the cup Jesus used when instituting the Lord's Supper was the third cup. It was, it was the cup of redemption. Sometimes it's called the, the cup of blessing. Right? Scholars have come to this conclusion based upon the fact that Jesus took the cup after the supper. And if you follow the traditional Jewish Passover meal, the, the first cup was right at the very beginning. And the second cup would be right after the telling of the, uh, the plagues that happened. And the third cup would be after the supper. Okay? 
And then there would be a, a fourth and final cup that they would drink of uh, after singing praise. Uh, and so this third cup was the one they took after the supper. And so many people believe that the cup that Jesus was using after the supper was this third cup, the cup of redemption. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, the cup of blessing. Okay, another word for that, another term used for the cup of redemption. Which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The third cup was a reminder of God's promise of redemption from slavery. And Jesus used the cup of redemption as a symbol to institute a new covenant that allowed us to be redeemed by His shed blood. And so we see that He used the Passover and and the symbolism of the Passover and He just totally took it upon Himself and said it's not about it's not about suffering in in Egypt anymore. It's about my body and I'm going to suffer for you. And so when we partake of communion and we take the, the cup, it's that cup of redemption that we've been redeemed by His blood. And so let's partake of the cup of redemption. It's the the blood uh, of Christ. A picture of His blood shed for us. Let's partake. Let me pray for you. Father, we just thank you for this morning. Father, we thank you for... Lord, how how you work... Lord, you're in, involved in all the details. Something that happened thousands of years prior, the, the Passover, and how you worked through the lives of the, the Jews, and, and you redeemed them, and they were your people, and yet you all along had this plan that this was just a, a shadow of things to come, a picture of what your Son would do for us. Lord, we thank you that the old covenant is has been fulfilled. It's been done away with. Uh, there is a new covenant. No longer do we need to, to lay our hands upon a lamb or a bull or, or any other type of animal and have that sacrifice for us over and over and over again. But because of your son's sacrifice, we could be washed clean. Lord, we can have our sins removed. Not just covered up, but removed. Thank you for that new covenant. Thank you for that covenant of, of founded in the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Not in and of ourselves, but a, a work that's been extended to us as a gift. Father, I pray that everyone here can boldly proclaim and, and with great assurance know that they have received that gift. And that you have redeemed each and every one of us. Lord, thank you so much for the cross. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your sinless life that you laid down for us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be like Judas. Uh, We wouldn't be kind of coming and playing and doing the motions and, and acting the part. But Lord, that our heart would be touched by you. Lord, we love you and we give you thanks again just for this morning and the opportunity to spend in time in your word and time in your presence. I pray your blessings upon each and every one of us. I pray this in Jesus' name.